Europe should, and, and, and the West should take a very firm stance against both Sunni and Shiite fundamentalists if it wants to prevent another wave of refugees coming into uh, its territory. And prevention, um, and not trying to deal with it as it happens, should be the strategy. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State in Israel. Each episode broadens the listener base in this podcast series, and none more so than the one previous to this with Israel's ambassador to the UK, Mark Regev, who I interviewed in his office suite at the embassy in Kensington in the last few months of his UK mission. For his hopes for Middle East peace, his historical analysis of leftist anti-Semitism, and his own story of coming to Israel aged just 22 with few contacts and not much family Scroll down the list of episodes to number 30. And while you're there, check out the only currently serving Israeli politician who's British, Fleur Hassan Nahum, on the struggle for equal opportunities to match equal rights in Israel and the quandaries of granting free speech. And that's episode 28. My guest today is no less remarkable. He predicted the rise of Islamic State and where it would establish a caliphate in his book, the Virtual Caliphate, published nearly a decade ago. It's Yaakov Lapin, military affairs correspondent and analyst, research associate at the Begin Sadat Centre for Research Studies at Bar Ilan University, and in-house analyst with the Miriam Institute. And it's with thanks to Chief Executive Sergeant Benjamin Anthony for making our introduction. In 1924, the last caliphate... An Islamic state, as envisioned by the Quran, was dismantled in Turkey. But in 2011, the virtual caliphate outlined an Islamist state that already exists on computer servers around the world, used by Islamists to carry out functions typically reserved for a physical state, like creating training camps, mapping out a state's constitution, and drafting tax laws. His book predicted how Islamists, equipped with 21st century technology to achieve a 7th century vision, would upload the virtual caliphate into the physical world. Yaakov, you predicted IS. Um, I did, um, and I would even humbly point out that I predicted that they would establish it uh, in either Iraq or any area uh, where they would find a failure of state sovereignty. I didn't foresee Syria, but I certainly saw uh, the Fridal Crescent and the Iraq area as a place where Islamic State could upload its vision. Um, and absolutely, we have seen this transition from the online jihadist world into the physical, uh, offline, territorial world. We've seen this vision being uploaded and then destroyed um, by a coalition of Western countries. I look at contemporary history around the world and I'm looking at that terrible attack on the Sri Lankan Christians. Is that the same inspired idea that they are testing the Buddhist majority in Sri Lanka, the Muslims there, or are they sending another message? It's 100% the same ideology. These, these are Salafi jihadists. Salafi jihadists believe that they are in a state of war with the entire world where any anywhere that does not fall in line with their fundamentalist uh, vision of how a state should be run, which is the most extreme um, adherence to Islamic law, uh, they consider themselves to be in a state of war with that place. It doesn't matter if it's an Arab Muslim country that's not religious enough for them, a Christian country, a secular country, or a Buddhist country. 
And uh, the terrorist cell that carried out the Sri Lanka bombings is absolutely part of the same Salafi jihadist ideology that gave birth both to Al-Qaeda and, and to Islamic State. Yakov, as you develop these ideas through your research, what extraordinary developments have you found? Well, when I was researching the virtual caliphate book, which was, uh, as you point out, approximately a decade ago, I was amazed by, first of all, how accessible this online activity was. It was in English. I was uh, being exposed to English recruitment um, chat rooms where uh, senior uh, Islamist jihadist figures were basically... Um, bringing in British Muslims into their way of thinking, and I was alarmed by this, which is why I published articles uh, in the Times um, when I was uh, exposing uh, th this activity. And it, it also amazed me about how, how easy it was to get into these forums, how accessible uh, this entire world was. Um, these days I know that things have changed, very much so. I'm not active in this line of research anymore, but I'm well aware that these chat rooms are encrypted, they're very difficult to enter, and they've lowered their profile. So the activity is still very much going on, very much posing a danger to international security, but much harder uh, for people who are looking for it to find it and get into these forums without being spotted by their forum managers. Now, since you wrote the book, we have seen the rise of Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, their subsequent defeat, yeah. and the consequential mass migration of refugees into Europe, which has changed the politics of Europe. Is the gap between the people and their governments in the West bigger than ever? In the West? Um, it's a hard issue for me to comment on because my uh, expertise does not focus on the West. What I can say about migration and how it's going to change, Middle Eastern migration to the West, and how it could change politics is ISIS is, is just one reason why uh, Middle Eastern refugees are pouring into the West. Another reason is, say, take the Assad regime. The Assad regime is responsible for millions of Syrians uh, leaving uh, the state of Syria. And uh, the fact is that most of these people who, are, who have emigrated from Syria, who've, who've escaped conflict there, are Sunnis. And they're running away because um, a coalition of Shiite Alawites who are waging the war in Syria on behalf of Assad have basically ethnically cleansed them from their homes through mass murder and war crimes. So what we're seeing here is sectarian warfare um, creating wave upon wave of refugees from the Middle East and I think that, that will uh, destabilize uh, to a certain extent uh, the political systems in the West if it repeats itself. If we see another wave which I think is, is, is quite likely I mean if Assad continues He's about to launch a major offensive in Idlib. Um, and if that creates another wave of refugees, or if Turkey makes good on its threat to uh, open the gates, open the floodgates on Syrian refugees and let them travel into Europe, uh, we'll see this trend continuing. So religious sectarian warfare in the Middle East creating waves of refugees, and Europe, because of its proximity to the Middle East, is going to be directly affected by uh, these trends, no question about it. And of course, that will produce the upheaval that we have seen so far in society. Do you have any research on how Western governments might respond this time? I don't think we will see banners with refugees welcome in quite the same way in Germany as we did five to ten years ago. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? 
Israel is a rare country in, in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel, um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. I think it really depends on the government in power um, and their approach to uh, refugees. Um, but, you know, I think that really Europe's interest and Britain's interest and everybody who could be affected by this phenomenon is to try and prevent it. That would be the smartest thing to do in my point of view. Uh, try and prevent the next wave of refugees coming. And the way to do that uh, is to shine the international spotlight on the war criminals in the Middle East who are creating these waves of refugees. So. Uh, we've talked about the Assad regime, that's one. Um, ISIS has been uh, destroyed, its caliphate has been destroyed, but it's not uh, gone for good. Uh, according to every assessment, intelligence assessment that I've seen, um, what will happen with ISIS is it will go back to being a decentralized network um, and it will continue its attacks throughout the region. So as a force, um, it's going to remain in our lives and the West has to be committed uh, to a prolonged, sustained campaign to prevent the caliphate from ever rising up again. So uh, taking action against uh, Shiite extremists is another major uh, goal. I Iran, a Shiite fundamentalist state, is the main backer of the Assad regime. Um, without Iranian support, we would not see all of these refugees coming into Europe from uh, Syria. So, you know, if we have to reduce it to a headline, Europe should, and, and, and the West should take a very firm stance against both Sunni and Shiite fundamentalists if it wants to prevent another wave of refugees coming into uh, its territory. And prevention, um, and not trying to deal with it as it happens, should be the strategy, if, if you ask me. Now, Iran, as you mentioned there, uh, says Colonel Richard Kemp, is the world's biggest threat. Donald Trump took out Qasem Soleimani. Iran is surrounding Israel with guided missile technology to attack with precision from Lebanon to Syria and even Yemen. Benjamin Netanyahu and the IDF have been very effective in taking out these missiles, but how does Israel avoid being dragged into a regional war by having to defend itself preemptively against such missiles in countries maybe even several borders away, like Yemen? Israel um, has to draw red lines and define what it's willing and unwilling 
to accept when it comes to the force buildup of its enemies, and it has done that. Um, I think we have to take into account that while uh, Iran is certainly interested in spreading precision missiles uh, around Israel, it's not interested in entering into a full-scale war with Israel at this time. It has enough on its plate, it's challenged from multiple directions, and it wants to up the ante um, and, and engage in brinkmanship, um, but it's not interested uh, in, in entering a full-scale war. So with that in mind, um, I think Israel uh, has no choice but to continue doing what it's done until now, which is take selective action to interrupt the force buildup of its enemies. If that means airstrikes, then airstrikes have to happen to destroy uh, sites where Iranian missiles are being uh, set up. We've seen hundreds of these airstrikes in the past two years alone in Syria. There have been reports of these strikes happening in Iraq. If it's necessary to do it in Yemen, then it will have to happen in Yemen. Um, and while sending the message at the same time that Israel is not interested in an escalation, but it will defend its red lines, whatever the cost. Now, the paradigm of the Middle East situation may be changed over the coming four years, which is the timetable for the just-released deal of the century to coincide with Donald Trump's second term should he be re-elected and the point at which sometimes the second term of an American president gets described as a lame duck. The idea that the Palestinians need to come to the table and negotiate within this framework or Israel is then able to do what it needs to do to protect its borders and take on Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, as its own territory. How does it change the Middle East situation with all the kind of paradigms that you've just discussed? Right. So first of all, I think it's a reflection of the changes in the region. The fact that the Sunni Arab world is not up in arms over the presentation of the deal of the century tells us something. It tells us something very important, that their priorities are no longer the Palestinians. And I think that's the most important thing that comes out of this development. The fact that the Sunni Arab world is not... Um, up in arms and rioting um, over this, and rioting, you know, metaphorically over this uh, deal, tells us that their top priority is countering Iran and its access in the region. And uh, Israel is a partner for the Sunni world in this effort to keep Iran in check. And what all of this means, there are also other factors. Within the Sunni world, there's a great amount of instability. There's not a single Sunni country that you can touch on in the map that you could call stable today. Egypt, uh, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, they're all facing various levels of instability. So what all this means is that the Palestinians have dropped down probably to the last priority of these governments. Um, and that is the first thing that we have to take into account. That doesn't mean uh, that the uh, publics in these countries will uh, be um, uh, uh, uncaring of, of the deal, but the governments are certainly not seeing it as a top priority. And as long as their public won't force them to, uh, it won't make it a priority. Um, as regards the deal itself, I think it's a very interesting development because, uh, first of all, I think that the chances of uh, Abu Mazen, of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, of accepting any deal, let's put aside the details right now, accepting any deal that would mean that he gives up the right of return is, is, is practically zero. I don't think he's strong enough to leave behind a legacy um, in which he is seen as the Palestinian leader who gives up the right of return. Um, whether he wants to or not, I'm not delving into his mind, but in terms of power politics, 
He's under constant threat from Hamas. He's being tarred as a traitor, even right now, just for having security coordination uh, with Israel on a daily basis. And I think he's reached the limit of what he can do in terms of um, uh, coming towards Israel diplomatically. So that's, that's one thing. So the other thing is, if, if he's unable to, if we accept that assumption, he's unable to accept any deal right now, um, what's the significance of this deal? Well, this deal actually um, sets out Israel's core security interests, which is Jordan Valley, presence on the Jordan Valley, um, uh, permanent presence in the settlement blocks, um, and these are things that have been recognized by uh, the Trump deal. Um, there are other aspects that appear to be problematic or which can't be uh, implemented in the near-term future. So I think what this deal really shows is that A, the region has changed, B, the United States recognizes Israel's core security interests, and C, it could be a starting point in the future if conditions allow uh, for negotiations to continue. Yaakov, can you outline the IDF leadership system that you've crystallized and, and you talk about regularly? You lecture and speak in this area. It seems very intriguing, very interesting. Start from the top. Okay, sure. This is a fairly new project that I've launched, um, and um, it was inspired by the fact that I noticed during my military affairs coverage that uh, senior military um, officers and command levels in Israel often look to the private sector to learn lessons. Um, they have come to the conclusion that um, they need to spread out their avenues for learning, um, and they um, have gone to startup companies, they've gone to Google, they've gone to IBM, not just to learn about technology, but also to learn about ways of working, ways of dealing with problems, learning new organizational cultures, etc., etc. And I'll just give you a brief example of that. I once attended an Air Force conference, and one of the main speakers there was a doctor. And I couldn't understand at first what a doctor was doing at an Air Force conference. So I pulled aside one of the organizers, somebody who's um, a very significant figure in the Air Force in terms of their information systems. Um, and he explained to me, look, a doctor, when he has a, a serious incident, he has several patients and he has to prioritize who to treat first. We in the Air Force can get into a situation where we have multiple targets and we need to figure out how do we prioritize. So we brought him in to learn how to prioritize. Just one example of how uh, the Air Force has reached out uh, to other sectors to learn. And then the follow-on question, the natural question in my mind was, can this uh, learning avenue be reversed? Is it a one-way street or is it a two-way street? And I quickly came to the conclusion that it's a two-way street, that the private sector and public organizations can learn a lot um, from certain ways that the Israeli military functions. And I began a journey of exploration, uh, putting together what I found to be universal lessons uh, that can be applied across the board that are prevalent in the IDF that I think would greatly benefit other organizations as well. Because this is a very unusual Western country, Yakov, because Donald Trump tries to squeeze 2% of GDP out of uh, fellow NATO countries in terms of spending on its military and it's very reluctant. Britain said it's doing it. Mm -hmm. If only Israel could spend just 2% of its GDP, it's multiple numbers higher than that. But actually, in terms of the benefit to the country, in terms of its civilian infrastructure, in terms of the strength of its nation-building, yes. uh, the positive consequence of defense, it has multiple positive effects throughout society. Absolutely. I, I think we have to remember that in this country and in this region... And this is something that 
Um, the public here sometimes forgets, too, when we have debates about what the defense budget should be. Without defense, there is nothing here. We, won't, we can't talk about health care, we can't talk about uh, corruption and fighting corruption and all of the issues that are very popular today. None of that would be relevant if rockets and missiles would be raining down here every day and life would be intolerable and people wouldn't want to start families here and businesses and we wouldn't have a national economy that's thriving if we didn't have defense. Defense is the core of everything in this country. So every uh, shekel or dollar that's invested here is going to um, be magnified in terms of the effects that it has on it, enabling all the other vital core sectors of this country. So I completely agree with your statement and even take it a step further. Which is what I was hoping for. Yakov Lapin, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure, thank you. Thank you, Yakov Lapin. For more on the deal of the century, check out episode 29 with Colonel Richard Kemp, also recorded in Israel, and a colourful couple of minutes with The Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, Donald Trump's one-time communications director, with the emphasis on one time. My name's Johnny Gould. This is My Jewish State. Listen and subscribe to other episodes now. Now.